So we're uh, in uh, session 11. Check it out. You like it? All right. I'm getting pretty good at this. We are in session 11 of our discussion of the book of Revelation, and we have really just begun to set a foundation for it. Um, we are today going to finally get into the book. We have a few things that I think uh, the Lord has put on my heart to talk about right before we get into this. Uh, but we are going to understand further what the book of the Revelation is, is really about. The time period that most of it, at least from chapters 4 on, is focused on. And how it is meant to prepare us as a guide. And it, it, as a guide and as a preparation it is a manual for life after Yeshua, until he comes back. After the coming, the first coming of Yeshua, to the moment he returns. It is a manual of life. If you haven't gotten a chance to, to um, look at our series on the seven congregations, which is the first three chapters, or chapter two and three of the book of the Revelation, Go back on our website and you'll find them. That is a manual of how the enemy and the world will try to compromise us. And the snowball effect of our compromise or the potential for our compromise will build to a crescendo in these last days. Go back and because and, we're not going to go over that. So, Father, we just put this in your hands. We ask you to speak to our hearts. Share with us what you would have us to know. We, we ask you to show us your ways, your paths. Lead us in your truth, Lord, and teach us. For it's not me. It's not any preacher. It's not any teacher. It's not any motivational speaker. You are the God of our salvation, and on you we wait all the day. All right, so I will repeat myself again the way I did um, how many times now, pretty much every time we've talked about the book of the Revelation. <clears throat> and I'm pretty much going to repeat what I said to, to introduce last week. The book of the Revelation is a particularly difficult book for most. And, and especially those in traditional denominations and, and even in the evangelical world, most shy away from teaching it because it is so contradictory to that foundational principle of hypergrace. That everything is okay. That God loves us. That He's not the same God as the God of of the Bible of Yeshua and Paul and Peter. He's a different God now. So most try to play off the heaviness of the book of Revelation by allegorizing it to sort of fit their own concept of God. And, and even if people don't shy away from reading and, and teaching about the book, it is an extremely difficult book because of one thing. It's actually a very simple book. I know it, that sounds crazy. The book of the Revelation, all these allegories and, and beasts and figures and dreams and yada yada. It is difficult only because people misapply the idioms to fit their own preconceived eschatology. So you come to the book of Revelation with a preconceived notion of what the last days and, and you know, the, the apocalypse is going to be, and you try to fit square pegs in round holes, and you try to change the allegory into fitting what you want. We have to fit our eschatology, create our eschatology based on God's Word, and not the other way around. And the book of the Revelation is and simple. It is the climax of all the promises and prophecies made to the children of Israel 
throughout Scripture. And uh, I, I heard this, but Robichek saying that all prophecy is about Israel, that's awfully narrow and, and selective. You know, especially the book of Revelation is all about Israel. After all, you, you know, Robichek, you're Jewish. You know, of course you would see it that way. I truly, I, I truly hope that even if I was born a Gentile, I would have enough intellectual and spiritual integrity to realize that the entire Bible is a Jewish book. Written by Jewish men and women to the Jewish people about a love affair between God and his people and the plan of redemption that he has for the world entire through his chosen people. And so it's a love affair between God and his people, but it's a love affair between God and by extension the entire world through the Jewish Messiah it becomes a love affair between God and all of humanity because we've all been invited to be part of that family. Okay? So prophecy is about that, and we are going to see today in just the first few verses of chapters 4 and then 5 that the book of the Revelation is a Jewish Again, let's introduce the book of the Revelation with this first three verses. Right? This is the revelation which God gave to Yeshua, the Messiah, so that he could show his servants what must happen very soon. He communicated by sending his angel, messenger, to his servant, Yohanan, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Yeshua, the Messiah, as much as he saw. Who is he in that? The revelation which God gave to Yeshua the Messiah so that he could show his servants what must happen very soon. He communicated it. Who is he there? Is it God or Yeshua? It's God. The Father. The Father communicated by sending his, and that word angel is just a messenger. Who is God's messenger in this case? The revelation was given. I know this sounds a little goofy, but listen to, to what the scriptures are saying. He gave the unveiling to Yeshua to show his servants. And he communicated it by sending his messenger to his servant, Yochanan, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of who? Yeshua the Messiah. He bore witness to it. As much as he saw, Yeshua opened up his eyes and he said, Blessed are the reader and hearers of the words of this prophecy, provided they obey the things written in it, for the time is near. So let's not get caught up into anything else other than this was an unveiling. God opened up the curtain to the future to the present by using the past to help them to help Yohanan understand the present and the future and he said blessed are the reader and hearers of the words of this prophecy provided they obey the things written in it so you ready for some obedience training so where are we we are here, right there. And if you don't know what this is, go back to the last few messages because we talked extensively about this. This is from Daniel 9, the 70th week. The 70th week is the last week, right? Which is where the great tribulation comes in, right? We are preparing to enter into the 70th week of which the first three and a half years, according to Daniel, 
and according to what we're going to read in the book of the Revelation, is a, actually a very sort of quiet and, and wonderful and peaceful time. For who? What is the 70th week, or who is the 70th week in Daniel 9 about? And if you don't know the answer to this, you need to go back and watch or listen to the last few messages over and over and over. Who is the 70th week about? Israel, the Jewish people, and Jerusalem, which is a, you know, Zion, which is a, uh, an idiom for both the land and the people of Israel, right? That's what that 70th week is about. And believe it or not, that's what the book of the Revelation is about. Now, will the 70th week impact the world around Israel and, in fact, impact the entire world? Of course. It will involve that. I love what, um, what uh, a minister said. I was listening to uh, recently one of my favorite ministers. Um, how many of you know who Joel Richardson is? No? Okay. No big deal. Um, he said what is going to happen at the last days is kind of like a, what you see, how a tropical storm turns into a hurricane. The tropical storm sort of settles over the ocean. It kind of hangs out. It builds momentum. And it moves slowly. But by the time it gets to where it's supposed to go, or where it, it's going to go, it builds into potentially even a Category 5 hurricane. And destruction is in its wake. Well, the tropical storm is building even now and it's building right over Jerusalem. But it's going to be a tsunami effect, not just a tropical storm turning into a hurricane, and will impact the entire world. And we're going to find out how. The last three and a half years is Jacob's trouble. That's when all hell breaks loose, first and foremost upon the Jewish people in Israel, and then spreads. Okay? But... What I wanted to show you is we are right here. Are you ready? That's what the book of the Revelation is about. To prepare you and me and to instruct you and me about what, this is, what is going to happen and what our mission will be as things unfold. The question is, will we obey that mission? The question is, are we obeying that mission now? Because if you're not obeying that mission now, you better get squared away. We all better get squared away pretty quick. So you all know this by heart, right? This Spring feasts and the fall feasts. The spring feasts were where Yeshua came. The, the, the redemption plan of God was embedded into the spring feast, and Yeshua fulfilled it exactly, precisely the way it was, it was you know, carried out in Leviticus 23. He fulfilled it. We are now in the summer harvest. And we are preparing for the beginning of the fall feast where Yeshua will fulfill exactly and precisely as He did in the spring feast with His coming, not as the Lamb of God, but as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And what will begin that second coming of Messiah, right? that will initiate the fall feasts on Yom Truah, the Feast of Trumpets. We went, went through that. But before that comes, what's in red is the last seven years. And Yeshua said this, we've read this, For there will be trouble then worse than there has ever been from the beginning of the world until now, and there will be nothing like it again. Talking about the great persecution, the great tribulation. A three and a half year period according to Scripture. 
Okay? And if you think you're going to get out of it, I would plan otherwise. Because Yeshua himself said, as we shared last week, remember what I told you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you too. And so what else will happen? The great persecution will follow will be followed by the fall feasts, the coming of Yeshua and Yom Truah, and that will initiate the, what is called the Day of the Lord. Again, we've been talking about that. The Day of Vengeance, the Day of the Lord, the Day of the Wrath of the Lamb. This is what God will not allow us to be part of. And he said, Paul said this in 1 Thessalonians, and to wait for his son Yeshua, wait for his son Yeshua, whom he raised from the dead, what are we waiting for? For him to appear from heaven and rescue us from the impending, impending fury of God's judgment. The great persecution is not God's judgment. The great persecution, what does it say? God, God is not the persecutor. Who persecutes? And who does he use? Peoples, kingdoms, nations, empires. He did a pretty good job at convincing the, the German people just 80 years ago to attempt to annihilate an entire nation of people. Not just, that's right, not just in Germany and in Eastern Europe and then Western Europe, but throughout the world. That was their goal. Read the book. And so the book of the Revelation, the unveiling, God opening up the curtain to what's going to happen. <clears throat> so before we do this, what is the purpose of the Great Tribulation? This is what's happened, what will happen before Yeshua comes, that last three and a half years. Actually, listen to me, the entire seven-year period of that 70th week is about this, which is why he talks about it in terms of a 70th week. The purpose of the Great Tribulation is that the fullness of sin will crescendo. You think it was bad in the Holocaust. You think it was bad back in Egypt, you know, to the Jewish people. You think it's been bad persecuting people who, who believe in the, in the Jewish Messiah you know, in, in nations today, cutting off their, their heads just because they profess Yeshua as Messiah. The 2,000 years prior to the Holocaust, 1,800 years prior to the Holocaust, Jewish men and women, you know, the Holocaust wasn't the first Holocaust. There were times when tens of thousands of Jews were gathered together and burned Murdered. There was well over, probably closer to a million and a half Jews who were murdered way before the Holocaust over the course of 1,700, 1,800 years. The world system and its followers will rise to the height of pride and arrogance against the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob during this period. And it, the world system, and they, those who are immersed in it, will justify the persecution of his people. And who are his people? Revelation says the, the children of the woman, the woman being Israel, the children being the Jewish people, and those that follow him and Obey the commands of Yeshua the Messiah. It is going to be persecution of the Jewish people that makes the Holocaust look like a party. And any of those of us, Gentiles, Jews around the world, that align themselves with that will be persecuted. 
Do you remember what we talked about out of Daniel 2 a few weeks ago? It's called the, the, um, the iron of the image of Nebuchadnezzar that is present at the very last days. That's what this world system is. It's the iron. We're going to find out that that same iron of that image, right, is the harlot of Babylon in the book of the Revelation. 2 Timothy 3 says this, Moreover, understand that in the Aharit Hayamim, what is that? The last days will come trying times. People will be self-loving, money-loving, proud, arrogant, insulting, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, uncontrolled, brutal, hateful of good, traitorous, headstrong, swollen with conceit, loving pleasure rather than loving God. I mean, the world, to some extent, has always been like that, but it is going to come to a crescendo like you won't even imagine. You know, 25 years ago, 30 years ago, when we were raising our kids, we had to worry about, you know, maybe one of the people in the neighborhood who may have been a sex offender or somebody crazy. And we were protecting our kids for that, from that. We would, you know, kind of make sure that we were there when they arrived at school and we were there when they left school. Because the, the factors that would penetrate to, to potentially hurt our kids, we thought were outside that we could somehow control. Guess what? They're now teaching that in the schools. It's okay to explore your sexuality in the second grade. It's okay if you feel like you want to be something other than you are in kindergarten. If you can't tell me that things have gone crazy, and, and you know, I, we can be as loving as we want, but let's think about this. What was once, that's really weird, different, and just so small a portion of our society has now become the norm. It is what it is. How are you going to, to change that? You're not, because it's going to get worse. And if you're part of a tradition that believes that the world is only going to get better until Jesus comes, I would say, shush. There's only one person preaching. Your head is in the sand like an ostrich. You're living in an ulterior dimension that is not reality. And so the fullness of evil hatred will also crescendo at the Great Tribulation. It's snowballing now. Those with an eternal hatred for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will position themselves in a final attempt to destroy his people, Israel, and the body of Messiah, and his land. This is the clay of Daniel 2, the image of Nebuchadnezzar. And it will be the beasts of the book of Revelation. And why is God permitting all of this? I mean, why can't he just say, that's it, I'm done. Sin is sin. Good is good. I know the difference. Get rid of all the bad guys. He is permitting this, according to Scripture, to allow sin and evil to prove itself and to allow those who are aligned with sin and evil, who have made that choice, to be without excuse on the day of judgment. 
But he's also doing this to allow all and everything in his prophetic scriptures to come about. God is God. He knows what he's doing. Would you do it that way? It's above my pay grade. Revelation 6 says this, When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been put to death for proclaiming the word of God, that is, for bearing witness. They cried out in a loud voice, Sovereign ruler, Hakadosh, the true one, how long will it be before you judge the people living on earth and avenge our blood? This is the book of Revelation. How are you going to allegorize that? into something that sounds like kumbaya sitting on a beach, playing guitar. The purpose of the Great Tribulation is also that God will permit that great persecution to occur. Why? Look at the history of Israel, which is the history of us, all of humanity, in a microcosm. God reaches out in love, starting all the way in the Garden of Eden, but over and over since Abraham. God reaches out in love, redeems the people, helps them, gives them guardrails to live in a, in, in an, a world that is basked and bathed in sin to, to live in a reality that keeps them from that sin to the best of, of his ability to do that and they fall, and they, they, they run from God, and they worship idols. And then he rescues them again, and they, he loves them, and he nurtures them, and they fall again. And then he rescues them again through Messiah, and they reject the Messiah, not everyone, but, you know, and, and they fall, and they're in diaspora for, for 2,000 years, and then he reaches out and he brings them back to the land out of love. And This is a cycle of sin, chastisement, and deliverance over and over and over again. But this great persecution will be the final chastisement upon Israel. And it will lead to their ultimate repentance and national salvation just as God promised. Zechariah 12 says this, when that day comes, talking about when the world comes against Jerusalem, attacks Jerusalem, I will seek to destroy all nations attacking Yerushalayim, he said. Listen to this. Are you guys with me? When that day comes, I will seek, God says, to destroy all nations attacking Yerushalayim. He's talking about that great tribulation period when the whole world will come against Israel, attack Jerusalem. He said, I will pour out on the house of David and on those living in Yerushalayim a spirit of grace and prayer. And they will look to me whom they pierced. Who's that? And they will mourn. What does that mean? He is going to pour out his grace and this spirit of prayer. And they will come to a place of repentance like never before. Mourning. That's the Hebraic concept of repentance. You know, the Bible constantly says, scriptures, the, the Tanakh says, you know, when people come to repentance, they put sackcloth and ashes. This is, this is also what they do when somebody dies. It's a mourning. And all of us have to come to a place of mourning, of repentance. But the Jewish people as a nation will do that. 
They will mourn for Him as one mourns for an only son. They will be in bitterness on His behalf like the bitterness for a firstborn son. When that day comes, there will be great mourning in Yerushalayim. And he goes on in Zechariah 13 to say this, When that day comes, a spring will be opened up for the house of David and the people living in Yerushalayim. What? To cleanse them from sin and impurity. When that day comes, says Adonai Tzavot, I will cut off the very names of the idols from the land so that no one even remembers them anymore. The Jewish people have gone back to idols over and over and over again. Guess what? So have all of us. And we still do. Romans 11 says this. This is Rebbe Shaul who introduced these three chapters by saying, if I could give my own life for my people, to see my people saved, he said, because I am a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, he said. If I could give my own life for them, I would do it now. And he goes on to say to those who say, well, God's done with the Jewish people. In that case, I say, isn't it that they have stumbled with the result that they have permanently fallen away, they being the Jewish people? Heaven forbid. That is Jewish and Greek parlance for there ain't no, not a snowball's chance in H-E double toothpicks. In fact, he goes even further and says quite the contrary. It is by means of their stumbling that the deliverance has come to the Gentiles in order to provoke them to jealousy. What does that mean? God, couldn't you find another people to sacrifice? Why? Do you know that if the leadership of the, of the Jewish people 2,000 years ago hadn't rejected Yeshua as Messiah, we'd still be in our sins? He wouldn't have gone to the cross, to the, to the execution stake. He had to be rejected. He had to be labeled a criminal and a heretic so that he could go there. He did it for us. He could have called, he said, a thousand legions of angels, but he said, my time has come. So because of that, y'all are now delivered. And what is the purpose of that deliverance? in this particular context, in order to provoke them, me, my people, to jealousy. How do you know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? How do you serve him? How do you love my God? When I don't have a clue. Moreover, if their stumbling is bringing riches to the world, that is, if Israel's being placed temporarily in a condition less favored than that of the Gentiles is bringing riches to the latter, how much greater riches will Israel in its fullness bring them? For if their casting Yeshua aside means reconciliation for the world, what will their accepting him mean? It will be life from the dead. For brothers, I want you to understand this truth, he says, which God formally concealed but has now revealed, so what? So you all, y'all Gentiles who think that, you know, you don't walk on the ground and your stuff don't smell like the Jews, which God formerly concealed, but has now revealed so that you won't imagine you know more than you actually do. It is that stoniness to a degree, to a degree, Obviously not completely, because I'm a Jew and I'm here talking to y'all. All y'all. Has come upon Israel until the Gentile world enters in its fullness. And that it is in this way that all Israel will be saved. As the Tanakh says, out of Zion will come the Redeemer. He will turn away ungodliness from Yaakov 
and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sin. And then Paul, just for an emphasis, says, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How inscrutable are His judgments. How unsearchable are His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been His counselor? Or who has given Him anything and made Him pay it back? For, if, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. And I think we can all say, Amen. Guys, He's got it figured out. We're just trying to understand what he's got figured out already. God will permit the great persecution to occur for another reason. It will be the greatest test of the body of Messiah, us, as to who truly and genuinely belongs to him. And many are going to fail. Many who call themselves followers, or who happen to sit in the pew of a church. Why will they fail? Because they never really were part of his family. They never really bought into who God is. And they never fully accepted his offer of redemption. It was a game. We see that today already. right? Remember the statistic I shared couple weeks back, in the United States, okay, the most Judeo-Christian country in the world, only 16% of this Christian nation say that their faith is the most important thing in their lives. 16%. That means 84% of the people that we come in contact every day believe that there is something more important than their faith. And of this body of people who call themselves Christians, 60%, 60, probably more than that, believe that there are many ways to God. That it's about just having some kind of faith. And don't get me started amongst my Jewish people. That goes up to about 85 to 90%. The purpose of the Great Tribulation, are you ready for this? Will give the believers, the true believers, one final opportunity to stand with the Jewish people in Israel. And I'm going to tell you something. For almost 2,000 years, people who call themselves Christians have failed miserably. Now, there were a few pretty cool, righteous Gentiles in the, you know, 80 years ago during the time of, of Hitler's reign. But the overwhelming majority of people who called themselves Christians either turned a blind eye or actually helped to murder Jewish people. So the question is, when uh, you-know-what hits the fan, what side of that line are you going to be on? If, if you were one of those Gentiles in, in Poland who, uh, who knew that your next-door neighbor was a Jew and who the Gestapo walked up to and said, either you tell me who in your neighborhood are Jewish or I will kill you your children, your family, after we rape and pillage you. What would you do? That happened over and over and over again. How do I know? I heard stories from people I knew. No. My parents, they were there. 
They told me the stories. My mom had to run from hiding place to hiding place for five years to escape. And every time they ran, they missed being caught by that much, by the Gestapo. My mom witnessed her father being arrested by the SS. Well, obviously somebody doesn't want us to hear. <laughs> All right. I have no idea when it died, but that's life, see? If you're out in the audience, or, or in the internet audience, you need to be here, because you would have heard everything. So what does it mean to destroy those who destroy the earth? From a, from a Hebraic, from a Jewish perspective, destroying the earth is destroying a life, a person. And how do you destroy a person? You know, the Talmud has this, if you've saved a person, you've saved an entire world. If you've killed a person, you've killed the entire world. That's a Jewish concept. How do you kill, how do you destroy somebody? You pervert them. You, you pull them away from God. You pull them away from truth. You influence them. And ultimately, you kill them. Physically, too. That's what that concept means. Yeshua said it this way, it is better for you to wrap a millstone around your neck and throw yourself into the sea than to make one of these little ones fall. If you don't think God cares about the junk that's happening in this world, a million kids a year being kidnapped and used for sexual exploitation throughout the world. What has this world come to? And people say it's okay. And then you, you, we wonder, God, how has your judgment not already come? Well, it's come. But you ain't seen nothing yet. And so what's going to happen here? At the end of the great persecution, God is going to restore Israel to her rightful place. The day of the Lord will come with vengeance. We are in the great commission now. On Yom Terah, the coming king and the coming judgment. And that will take place during the fall feast up until Sukkot when the New Jerusalem and the marriage supper of the Lamb occurs. And the Bible says in the book of the Revelation, and all things will come new. This is what the book of the Revelation is about. This time period, from preparing us for this time period. Now why you and I were born for such a time as this? There's a reason. Might as well accept it. You're not going to be able to change it. You can't change your parents. You can't change when you were born. A lot of things we try to change. Our looks. Our gender. Our sexual orientation. Husbands, wives. We can't change when we were born. And like Gideon, there is a purpose for why you were born. And like Esther, might as well throw yourself into it. And so chapter 1 we talked about is the unveiling by whom, to whom, for whom, about what, and for what purpose. Chapters 2 and 3 are the letters to the seven congregations. Go back and read that. Let's dive into chapter 4. So here we go. 
This is Yohanan. Remember, Yeshua is opening up his eyes, just like he did on the road to Emmaus with the disciples. He opened up their mind to the Tanakh. Here, Yeshua is opening up Yohanan's mind, and he's, he's there. People say, oh, he's seeing visions. I even said, oh, he's seeing visions. No, he's there. And he's describing it the best way he can. And is Yohanan Jewish? Did he live 2,000 years ago? What year was the book of the Revelation written? Do you know? It's about 90 AD, so about 60 years after Yeshua was murdered for us. He wrote it. Right? But he was whatever, I don't know what the word is in English, but he was transported into the future. How do we know? After he's finished seeing and, and hearing from Yeshua about the seven congregations, he said, after these things, I looked. I was there. And there before me was a door standing open in where? Heaven. He didn't say, oh, I saw a vision, my eyes were closed, and I was in a trance. And um, it was pretty cool. He said, there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice like a trumpet. So he's describing it to the best of his capabilities. So if, if an, an ant was suddenly placed into a human body, and saw reality, you know, from a human perspective for the first time, how would they describe what they're seeing and experiencing? They would do it to the best of their ability from their experiences, which are pretty much in the dirt, trying to carry dead bug wings and other things, to their queen or whatever, right? Thank you. Right? He's doing the best he can. And the voice like a trumpet, which I had heard speaking with me before, said, come up here, and I will show you what must happen after these things. So where is he? Everything starts and ends in the throne room of God. This is God's throne. What does that mean? He's in charge. How many of you have gone to the White House or a king's palace, right? In human terms, you walk in and you're like, ooh, this is, this is pretty intense. We're, we're at the place or, or the capital where you know, decisions are made, where you know, the most powerful man in the world sits or whatever. Think about where the Creator hangs out. And you walk into that, having never been there before, you're alive. You walk into it, and you're like, what? Instantly, says, I was in the Spirit, and there before me in heaven stood a throne. And on the throne, someone was sitting. The one sitting there gleamed like diamonds and rubies and a rainbow shining like emerald encircled the throne. Here's the fascinating thing. People say, well, the book of the Revelation, it's not about the Jewish people. It's not a Jewish book. You know, it's about you know, the, the, the Christian people at the end of the age or whatever. The word in the Greek for diamonds is actually the word jasper. Jasper. We translated diamonds because it's probably what they described as jasper back then is really what is a diamond. And what the Jewish people described as jasper is probably a diamond. The word for rubies is the word sardius, which is the same word as described in, in the Tanakh often for those jewels. Let's explore a little bit. Exodus 28, 
You shall set in it four rows of stones. What is this? Yeah, this is the choshen, the breastplate of the high priest. A row of sardius, tapus, topaz, sorry, and carbuncle. The first row of this four rows of twelve starts with sardius. And then, in the fourth row, a barrel, an onyx, and a jasper. The last of these stones on this shield, this breastplate, is jasper. The first and the last. Coincidence. Verse 29, Aharon will carry the names of the sons of Israel on the breastplate for judging over his heart when he enters the holy place as a continual reminder before Adonai. When he enters the holy place, the presence of God. So these stones represent what in the breastplate of the high priest? The 12 tribes. Anybody know what the first tribe was? Reuven, Reuben. And the last tribe? Benjamin. Reuven in Hebrew means behold, a son. Binyamin in Hebrew means son of my right hand. He's the first. He's the last. Pretty powerful. Sardius and Jasper. Right? Not a Jewish, not a Jewish book at all. Surrounding the thro- so if a Jew who is immersed in those times who understands Torah and reads this with an understanding of the Torah, it's like, of course. We're talking about the Son. We're talking about the Messiah. We're talking about the colors of heaven itself. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and on the throne sat 24 elders, dressed in white clothing and wearing gold crowns on their heads. What is this? I can tell you, Google this. Google 24 elders. And, and you know, just on the first page of the responses, there's usually about 20, depending on, you know, how you have it set, there's 20 responses. I guarantee you there will be 18 different responses on who the 24 elders are. And none of them are even close. Why? Because none of them have an understanding of what 24 and the elders are from a Hebraic perspective. Let's go back to Exodus 28. Look at this gold crown. And a crown is a victor's crown. That's the name, the, the Greek. It's, it's not a complete crown over the head. It's something that surrounds the head. Again, same book. You are to make an ornament of pure gold and engrave it on, grave on it as on a seal set apart for Adonai. Who's he talking about here? He's talking about the clothing of the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. Fasten it to the turban with a blue cord on the front of the turban over Aharon's forehead because Aharon, the high priest, bears the guilt for any errors committed by the people of Israel. Keep following me here. What does that have to do with the 24? First Chronicles. The sons of Aharon, Nadav, Avihu, Elazar, and Itamar, we know Nadav and Avihu dies. His children are therefore to function as the Kohanim. And now in First Chronicles, David, together with Tzadok, the righteous high priest from the descendants of Eleazar, and Achimelech from the descendants of Itamar, the high priesthood, arranged them in divisions of service. The first lot was drawn for Yeho- uh, Yariv, Verse 18, and the 24th for Maaz Yahu, 
These were the descendants of the Leviim according to their clans. What is this? This is the 24 selections for the service by the Kohanim, the high priest. The only time anywhere else in Scripture where the number 24 arises. And it is a multiple of the 12 tribes. Two. What is the priesthood of Israel? The priesthood of Israel concentrated in the high priest. And the character of Israel as the holy nation was concentrated in the priesthood. This is talking about the elders of Israel. It is talking about the nation of Israel. The high priest represented the holiness and priestliness of Israel. And not merely in certain official acts and functions, but so that as a particular Levite and Aaronite, and as the head of the time, being of the house of Aaron, the high priest represented in his own person the character of holiness and priestliness, which had been bestowed by God upon the nation of Israel. That was Cleforth, a Messianic Jewish theologian in the 1800s. Zechariah 3, he showed me Yehoshua, this is from our Haftorah, the Kohen Hagadol standing before the angel of Adonai, with the accuser standing at his right to accuse him. Adonai said to the accuser, may Adonai rebuke you, accuser. What is this? What is the context here? Anybody know? Who is Zechariah? We've read from him so much. He is a prophet that is from the post-exilic age, right? You have Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, who are part of the exile to Babylon. After the Jewish people are out of exile, Zechariah prophesies. So he's one of the later prophets. And so after they're back, he's like, you know, the, the king and, and, you know, the high priest, you know, they, they have to build this temple, Lord. They have to rebuild the temple. That was what was commanded of us. And so he's seeing this vision. And who is Yehoshua? What does Yehoshua represent? That's Joshua, who was what? The first high priest, if you will, when they entered the promised land. And definitely a, a, a type of Yeshua. And so here it is, this vision of the accuser. And who's the accuser? What's the Hebrew word? Hasatan, the accuser. The accuser standing at his right to accuse him, Yehoshua, the Kohen Gadol. Adonai said to the accuser, may Adonai rebuke you, accuser. Indeed, may Adonai, who has made Yerushalayim his choice, rebuke you. Isn't this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Yehoshua was clothed in garments covered with dung, and he was standing before the angel who said to those standing in front of him, Take those filthy garments off of him. And then to him he said, See, I am taking away your guilt. I will clothe you in fine robes. I said they should put a clean turban on his head. This is a vision very similar to what Yohanan was being given in the book of the Revelation. Not identical. But to understand that vision from a Hebraic perspective, you have to understand the priesthood, the the purpose of the high priest, and how this all plays a role in the coming redemption of Israel. I know we're just taking bits and pieces right now, but this is all going to come together. I know we're running late. Let me just do one more thing. From the throne came forth lightnings, voices, and thunderings, and before the throne were seven flaming torches, 
which are the sevenfold spirit of God. Okay, so one of the things that people use as arguments for the pre-tribulation rapture, hear me out here, is they say that this chapter, this vision, shows the believers in heaven. And one of the, the evidences they use is the seven flaming torches. They say this is the same as what God described the seven congregations in chapter 2 and 3. It's called them menorahs. And, and I sat and I, I heard somebody say this and, and I was discussing with somebody and I said, but what does the scripture say it is? It's, it's not the seven congregations. Before the throne were seven flaming torches, which are the sevenfold spirit of God. What does that have to do with the body of Messiah? Now, what the sevenfold spirit of God is, again, we're talking idiomatic. Are there sevenfold? In some, some translation it says the seven spirits of God. What is seven? What is seven emblematic of and idiomatic of? God. In front of the throne was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living beings covered with eyes in front and behind. The first living being was like a lion, the second living being like an ox, the third living being had a face that looked like human, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. We'll get into that when we get into later chapters. Each of the four living beings had six wings and was covered with eyes inside and out, and day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is Adonai, God of heaven's armies, the one who was and who is and who is to come. You're in the throne room of God. You're in the throne room of God. And you're seeing this. Everything starts with the throne room. What we're going to see in the rest of the book of the Revelation is being done in the throne room of God. So you're there, being transported to the throne room of God. And what happens? Whenever these living beings give glory, honor, and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, to the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the one sitting on the throne who lives forever and ever and worship him. They throw their crowns in front of the throne and say, you are worthy, Adonai Eloheinu, to have glory, honor, and power because you created all things. Yes, because of your will they were created and came into being. So if you don't like what's about to happen, starting with chapter 5, why, why, you know, you need to go to the throne room and question God. That's why he put chapter 4 in there. You start from the beginning. The creator is the one who makes the decisions, who does it the way he wants to do it, how he wants to do it, to whom he wants to do it, in the way he wants to do it, and that's it. And who are witnesses to this? The Jewish priesthood, the elders, whoever this, um, this living creature is, Yeshua the Messiah, and what happens next? I saw in the right hand of the one sitting on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. So next week we're going to talk about what this scroll is. Why did he give us a vision of the throne room and now he talks about these, this scroll and the seven seals? He's going to ask who is worthy to open the scroll. And we're going to find out what's actually written in the scroll, even though it doesn't talk about it in the book of Revelation. And we're going to find out what the seals mean and what is happening with every seal as it's being unsealed. And we're going to do it by looking at the 
Tanakh and interpreting Scripture with Scripture. Amen? You all there with me? I, I had a right to go a few minutes over. We had a pause, right? We good? All right. I only had 20 more slides for today, but... All right, stand with me. We got the kids out. Good. Hug somebody, hold somebody. <laughs> you only have one arm to to grab, huh? Where's my bride? Oh, was she? All right. Father God, we just come before you and we thank you and praise you for your word, Father. Father, help these people to be Bereans. Help them to go and study and study and study and reveal to them in their time. There is no way, Lord, that I can explain everything. <laughs> right? First of all, because I don't know everything. <laughs> Only you do in your spirit. So Lord, draw them to you this week and uh, help them to study and know this manual of who we are supposed to be in this time and day and age. Now, Lord, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace in the name of the Prince of Peace. <speaking in Hebrew> Shalom. Shabbat shalom, y'all.